We are talking once again with Maria Tomchik, local writer and activist, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning and good afternoon. And good afternoon <laughs> and good evening. And for those of you up in the space station, good job. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> good job, so no job. up there. No job today. He's in a busy scramble to uh, sell his condo and, and to move, so... Uh, they got to move on short notice and don't have a new place yet, so they're out there looking. Yep. They're pounding the pavement as we speak. Yeah. All right. So starting out with uh, this week's news, fingers crossed that we can find uh, a good news item out of all this. <laughs> yes. But uh, <clears throat> City Attorney Ann Davison making some big changes. Yeah. Uh, late last week, uh, Seattle City Attorney Ann Davison announced that the city attorney's office will no longer participate in community court or send any uh, any suspects to community court. <clears throat> now, community court was set up by Seattle Municipal Court Judge Damon Shadid, along with uh, some nonprofit groups who and, and uh, the prosecutor's office to... Um, and I, oh, and I should point out too that Judge Shadid won re-election last year against tough on crime opponents who criticized community court for being soft on criminals. But community court is meant to handle folks who've committed minor misdemeanor offenses like petty theft, trespassing, etc., by connecting them with services so that they can get their lives back together. Many of the folks who pass through community court are, are homeless folks or they're on the brink of homelessness or they have mental health issues or they have drug use disorders. People who've committed violent offenses, things like domestic violence, um, attempted assault or driving under the influence, they don't qualify for community court. Okay. So um, this all comes on the eve of a city council bill. That was introduced by Sarah Nelson and Alex Peterson to recriminalize drug possession and drug use in Seattle. And that bill cherry picks elements of the new tough on crime bill recently passed by the state legislature to replace an expiring state drug possession law. <clears throat> the Seattle bill would follow the state law in classifying drug possession and drug use as a gross misdemeanor instead of simply a misdemeanor that would qualify a person for diversion through something like community court here in Seattle. Now, this is in line with Ann Davison's campaign promise to lock up the homeless and drug users and throw away the key as long as, you know, Seattle has the money uh, and jail space to hold them, which it absolutely does not have. If the city's city attorney's office starts prosecuting cases of simple drug possession and drug use, that's going to add an estimated 800 to 900 new cases to the city's municipal court dockets every year. And there just isn't enough jail space in Seattle to accommodate that many more people. Plus, there aren't enough jail guards right now to handle the current prisoner population. Seattle is shipping inmates to other jails around the county in order to uh, accommodate the fact that they just can't hire enough jail guards. Oh, and there's also uh, significant issues for sure in the King County Jail with just basic uh, infrastructure functionality, tainted water, you know, numerous other issues that. Uh, mm -hmm. And the county jail is also having problems with hiring enough staff. So that's the issue, too. So, 
And, you know, there's the fact that over the last 50 years of the war on drugs, we know that locking people up for drug possession and drug use is a losing game. It's expensive for taxpayers, um, and it utterly destroys the lives of the people who are locked up, as well as their families, makes it very, very difficult for them to get their lives back into order. And and once you have a, a prison record or, or uh, jail time on your record or a history of being arrested and spending time in jail, it becomes that much harder for you to get a place to uh, a place to live, for you to rent uh, get a job, to get a new job. Uh, it makes it just so much more difficult to uh, pull yourself back up, back together <clears throat> Now, one of the reasons that Davison has cited for withdrawing from community court is that it doesn't force people to do public service work as part of their punishment for being caught possessing or using drugs. Uh, Judge Shadid has helpfully pointed out that forced labor is not as effective at getting people's lives stabilized as, say, things like drug treatment programs, mental health care, housing, <laughs> you know, food, regular meals. And uh, job training are all much, much more effective and have shown proven results in getting people off the street and getting their lives back together, whereas uh, forced labor, some folks would call it slave labor because you don't necessarily get paid for it, just uh, does not help people who have uh, drug possession or drug use issues. Okay, uh, but Davison didn't like that answer. So now she's refusing to send anyone to community court, which will essentially shut down that program at a time when Seattle uh, needs more resources to deal with the fentanyl epidemic, to deal with homelessness, uh, to help the folks who are falling through the cracks. And the city council is, in fact, each time they write a new budget, looking for ways to try to expand these diversion programs. They're not in the process of trying to shut them down, as Ann Davison is trying to do here with community court. Also, this coming Tuesday, the city council is going to be considering that new drug possession and drug use law. Uh, there are at least three people who look like they're shoe-ins to vote for it. That's the two folks who introduced it, Sarah Nelson and Alex Peterson, as well as council president Deborah Juarez, who often votes along with them. Uh, there are two what look like swing votes. Dan Strauss said that he might vote for something like this. And the other is Andrew Lewis, who is up for re-election this year and uh, is looking at uh, at the mayor's office, perhaps supporting another candidate in that race against him. And so he could be doing the calculus in his mind of, okay, if I vote against this bill, that could be used against me in my city council race later this year. So it'll be interesting to see. I think the city council could uh, definitely get four votes. I think Dan Strauss is highly likely to vote for it. Uh, and then Andrew Lewis could be the swing vote that pushes it over the top. So uh that's coming up this Tuesday. If folks want to participate, you you can join remotely and give testimony before that meeting. Or in the interim this weekend, I definitely recommend that you email your your council representative, especially if you're in Andrew Lewis's district or you're in Dan Strauss's district. And also, you know, what the heck, Deborah Warris's district as well. I know Sarah Nelson, and Sarah Nelson is one of the council members who represents the entire city, so definitely 
email her. She probably won't read it, but you never know. Yes, we all need to exercise. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and our- I'm not even mentioning Alex Peterson because I know if you email him, he's not going to read it. I know he represents your district, Mike. I mean, technically, he he mm-hmm. was elected to represent yes. the district. <laughs> Whether he's actually <laughs> representing it properly, um, yeah, it's debatable. Yeah. Okay. Tuesday, this last Tuesday at the uh, federal courthouse in Seattle, there was a gathering. Yes, the uh, U.S. District Judge James Robart was uh, held a hearing on the city of Seattle's petition to end the federal oversight of the Seattle Police Department. Now, the city filed its petition in March, along with the U.S. Department of Justice, requesting that the court release the city from court and federal oversight of the city's police department. The the petition uh, requested that the judge release the SPD from federal oversight over most aspects of the consent decree, but not all Uh, the aspects that they requested uh, the the police department be released from include the use of force against suspects, responses to cases involving behavioral health crises, investigative stops, biased policing and training, and officer supervision. Uh, those are all areas where the petition claims that the Seattle Police Department is in compliance. So the city was requesting the judge narrow the oversight to just the final two outstanding issues that Robart had pointed up in the last hearing. One is uh, use of force in crowd control situations like the George Floyd protests of 2020. And the other one is improving the oversight and accountability systems for the SPD. Uh, the city also... And this is what baffles me. The city also acknowledged that the police monitor has found that black and Native Americans are still disproportionately stopped, searched, detained and subject to use of force in Seattle, which I think would fall under biased policing. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But apparently the petition, even though it acknowledges these things, it still asks the judge to to consider the SPD in compliance uh, for biased policing, uh, which just kind of baffles me. Mm -hmm. But. But uh, the negotiations are continuing over a new contract with the Seattle Police Officers Guild. They're ongoing. They're also confidential. So uh, uh, the status of those negotiations couldn't be presented to the court. Uh, city law requires that all parties at the, ta- at the bargaining table keep the terms confidential until there's an agreement in place. Okay. Uh, but the city is claiming overall that those negotiations are going well and that uh, the Seattle Police Officers Guild, also known as SPOG, will accept the oversight and accountability measures that the city council passed into law in 2017 and were approved by Judge Robart. Now, Robart agreed that the Seattle Police Department has made significant progress with use of force declining by about half from its levels in 2015. But he stopped short of granting the city's motion uh, on Tuesday. He was particularly concerned that the city wouldn't be able to hit their stated deadline of the end of this year for meeting those final two requirements. He pointed out that the city's prior contract with SPOG, which was negotiated in 2018 after the city council passed their their uh, their ordinance 
with the uh, with the uh, oversight and accountability measures in it, that contract negotiated in 2018 removed a bunch of those accountability measures from the contract, and Robart had to find the city partially out of compliance with the consent decree because of it. So the court will have to wait and see, he said, if the city does better with negotiating a contract this time around. Uh, but that's not all. Robart also complained that the wording of the petition didn't contain strong enough language to support the continuation of an effective, fully funded and fully staffed office of the inspector general of the SPD or of the Office of Police Accountability. So the petition is going to have to at least be rewritten. So Robart, Robart wasn't ready yet to make an official ruling, and he sent the city and the DOJ back to the drawing board to improve the petition and to show some results, uh, particularly with the SPOG contract, uh, and to, and to, uh, uh, give them a little more evidence that they could actually hit that <clears throat> December 31st, 2023 end date. So that's the status of, of, of the, of the police oversight. The city petitioned for the terms to be narrowed and to at least partially lift the oversight. And the judge said, um, no, I'm not willing to rule just yet on that. I need these. I need stronger protections for police oversight. I need some requirements in this petition saying that you're going to that the city is going to commit to fully fund these offices that that exist, the Office of Inspector General and the uh the Office of Police Accountability, and that those offices will be fully staffed and will continue to function. Now, I would hope that he would also say, hey, there have been some concerns about how these offices are functioning and whether they're doing an adequate job, but he didn't make any mention of that, as far as I can tell, in Tuesday's hearing. So we'll see. Yeah. How it goes. He could still come back later and uh, after the petition is rewritten, rule to lift uh, some of the oversight over the SPD. But it didn't sound like he was willing to do that quite yet. Yeah, there's been a lot of criticism of the different oversight groups in charge of keeping an eye on. SPD. Yeah. Now, the Office of Police Accountability is supposed to hear complaints uh, particularly use of force complaints against SPD officers and uh, looking at the results of their cases that they hear, it looks like most of the time they give the officer the benefit of the doubt. And then the Office of the Inspector General is supposed to take a critical look at the functioning of the Office of Police Accountability and address complaints about how the OPA is running. And it appears that there's a very collegial environment between the two groups and that the Office of Inspector General rarely criticizes or deals with complaints about uh, the non-performance or poor performance of members of the Office of Police Accountability. So that's an issue that people have been having with the two oversight the two main oversight bodies. There's a third oversight body, which is the Community Police Commission. It's an all-civilian group of community members who are meant to be advising the city on best policies and best practices and advising the SPD and these other two groups on on police oversight. But uh, the Community Police Commission often finds itself on the outside, that their voices aren't heard by these other bodies and uh 
uh, when it comes to recommendations, you'll, you'll see the, the, the OPA and the OIG take one position and the CPC, the Community Police Commission, take a different one very often. The CPC has even, has even petitioned Judge Robart's court, uh, to, uh, rule differently from how the OIG and OPA and the city of Seattle would like them to rule. So that's, I think, also been an issue. And yeah, uh, there's uh, numerous uh, people critical of the CPC that also say it's much too collegial with the yes. other groups. So mm-hmm. yeah, so there are uh, there are uh, police accountability activists in the community who are not happy with the functioning of the CPC either. So mm-hmm. you know, it's not by any means, uh, and I it's not by any means a perfect. Uh, situation, but you could argue too that these, these, you're always going to have these conflicts and these conflicts are part of what keep these, these bodies honest is people on the outside saying, Hey, no, you know, you need to be tougher. So you can see that as, as simply part of the process and as something that is really important, a really important part of the process, or you could see it as a problem. And I, tend to think of it as maybe a combination of both. Sometimes if that, if you have continuing pressure like that, that may be an indication of a real problem. But it's important to note too that Seattle does not have full civilian oversight. And that's something that, that a lot of community activists had pushed for from the beginning. Um, that members of the Office of Inspector General and of the OPA often tend to be police officers or former police officers. Uh, they they are not uh, fully civilian bodies by any means, so um, that's also an issue. And the CPC doesn't real have real power, so that's something to consider. There are you know other cities and other parts of the in other parts of the world where there are there is meaningful civilian oversight, and Seattle has not actually implemented that. Let's uh, move on. We've got uh, numerous campaigns have now launched uh, people looking for wanting them valuable council seats. Yes, campaign season is in full swing now that the candidate filing has closed and uh, candidates are out there attending uh, attending, you know, uh, weekend events, shaking people's hands, meeting the Kissing public, babies. doorbelling, sitting on, on, uh, on panels to answer questions and so forth. And of course, they're out there raising funds. So I took a look, went on over to the Seattle Ethics and Elections, uh, department and I took a look at, uh, the, at the candidates. Um, also, I want to remind people of some of the deadlines. August 1st is the primary election. And uh, we'll all be getting our ballots in the mail in mid-July. So that's when you can expect them. In Washington State, if you're not registered to vote, you can now register to vote online at, and here's the URL, it's voter.votewa.gov. So it's voter, V-O-T-E-R, period, V-O-T-E-W-A, period, G-O-V. So you can just uh, type that into the address bar of a of an internet browser, and it should take you right to the screen where you start your voter registration process. July twenty fourth is the deadline for online voter registration, 
or you can visit if you if you don't have internet access, you can visit your local county elections office and register right up until 8 p.m. on election day. On election day, uh, in King County, that's at 919 Southwest Grady Way in Renton. Okay, so let's uh, take start taking a look at the campaign funding sources for at least the first three of the city council races. I'm going to look at District One, Two, and Three today. District One, the uh, leader in fundraising is Rob Saka. He has over $71,000. He has lots of donors giving between $110 and $400. That would be anybody who gives more than just their full four democracy vouchers. And uh, those and the folks who are his uh, high dollar or big dollar donors work for companies like Meta, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Real Networks, and Perkins Coie LLP. Uh, I guess you and, and that makes sense since Saka is himself a tech guy. And I guess that would be something I guess you would call that the new money in Seattle, right, is the high tech crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the usual old money here in Seattle are to tend to be real estate developers and uh, property owners downtown. Now, 32 percent of Saka's contributions are over two hundred dollars. Um, that's fairly high. For a city council, uh, for just a one, a single district city council member, 21% are small dollar amounts under $100. Now, Marin Costa is in second place in District 1 with $41,508 in contributions. She has fewer high dollar contributors and most of them appear to be retired or artsy folks or friends and family. Instead, she has many, many folks who've given her their full uh, four democracy vouchers and even half their democracy vouchers. In fact, the majority of her contributions, or 48 percent, are in that 100 to 199 dollar range. That's the folks who've given her all of their democracy, all four of their democracy vouchers. Just under 20 percent have given more than that, and the remaining 33 percent pretty high number or one third of her contributions are small dollar donations under a hundred dollars. Preston Anderson is in third place in that, in that district. He has so far $31,280. Anderson has about a couple dozen large donations over a hundred and the rest are made up of democracy vouchers. Unlike the other top candidates in the race, a 48% majority of his contributions are under $100, and that is one of the highest percentages in in the council races that I've looked at so far for for small dollar donations. And just uh, a point of disclosure, I gave half my democracy vouchers to Preston Anderson in District 1. Okay. And then uh, District 2 – the leader in this race is businesswoman Tanya Wu, uh, who's raised $84,000 by working her connections in the international district business community. Remember, Wu is the person who led the, the, uh, rejection, led the campaign to reject a new homeless shelter in the international district. She's also getting a lot of big dollar donations from some interesting sources. For example, slumlord Carl Hagland, has uh, given her uh, a big dollar donation and some of the usual real estate and property developer crowd. So you can see uh, a lot of real estate 
and real estate consulting businesses in her list of high dollar donations. So she has a lot of the uh, old Seattle money starting to line up for her. Now, the majority of her donations fall into the 100 to 199 dollar category. That's two thirds of her donations, reflecting that she has a lot of donors who've given her all their democracy vouchers plus some extra cash. Only 20% of her contributions are under 100, are small donors. Now, by contrast, incumbent Tammy Morales in this district has raised about $60,000. So she's about $24,000 or $25,000 under Tanya Wu. Her contributions over $100 include folks like Estella Ortega of El Centro de la Raza, uh, Faria Mohammed of the Somali Family Safety Task Force, former City Council President Lorena Gonzalez, former mayoral candidate Carrie Moon, and the Washington Democratic Central Campaign Committee. And I see many progressive names among the folks who've given her all of their democracy vouchers, particularly folks who live or work inside her district. 55% of her contributions are in the $100 to $199 range, reflecting how many people have given her all of their democracy vouchers and maybe a little extra cash. An additional 31% or almost a third have given less than $100 compared to just 20% for Tanya Wu. So that shows you where Tammy Morales' support is. It's really folks who are more progressive and uh, the lower income folks in her district are behind her. Now, in District 3, there are three candidates with uh, significant fundraising. Joy Hollingsworth is in the lead with a little over 88,000. She's far and away ahead of the others. Uh, Among her big dollar donors are real estate developers and folks who work for Boeing, Microsoft, Perkins Coie, and a lot of retirees. In other words, she's lining up the old money uh, Seattle folks. 20% of her contributions are over $200. 53% are between $100 and $199, and 27% are under $100. So actually a pretty good mix there, but again, in the early fundraising, she's collecting everybody's democracy vouchers and getting small cash contributions on top of that where she can. But she's also kind of raking in some of the big dollar donors as well. Now, Alex Hudson is in second place with about 53000 His high dollar donors, uh, and this may be why Joy Hollingsworth doesn't have more high dollar donors, uh, Hudson's high-dollar donors include political consultant Sandeep Kaushik of Soundview Strategies and developers Matt Griffin of Pine Street Group, LLC, and Jacqueline Gruber of Vulcan. Okay. So he is also targeting the old Seattle money there. He has the highest percentage of contributions, over $200, of any candidate that I've looked at so far, with 36%. Okay, None of the others come close to that. Another 33% or one-third is between 100 and $199, a reflection of, of people giving him all of their democracy vouchers plus cash, and 30% are under $100. And then in third place in this, uh, in this district is Andrew Ashiofu with about $30,000. He has no high-dollar contributions at all, not even one. His top donor is given $125 with only $25 of that in cash and the rest in their democracy vouchers. And that's true of all his donations over $100. It looks like his donors have slipped an extra, you know, when you look at it, it looks like his donors have slipped an extra five or 10 in the envelope with their vouchers. 
really <laughs> when they mail them in because they 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 like him. And it's like here's all your vouchers and here's a, a I went to my wallet and I fished out a five and here it is. And so 62% of his contributions are under $100 with the remaining 38% between $100 and 125. And a uh, point of disclosure here, I gave the other half of my democracy vouchers to Andrew Ashiopu. So that wraps up uh, my look at just at the races, the fund, the fundraising so far in districts one, two, and three. And uh, next week I'll look at districts four and five All right. at least. And I, I may go four, five, six, and seven. We'll see uh, how much other material I have for next week. Well, people will just have to tune in and find out. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you know, um, it's not a bad uh, idea. It's not a bad thing to necessarily let the fundraising guide you in selecting your candidates because it really does reveal a lot about their priorities and it's almost like a pre-selection process of uh, who is supporting whom it tells you a little bit about uh, how comfortable that person is with the candidate's policies. So, Definitely something to seriously consider when weighing any candidate. So where's oh, yes. the money coming from? Yes. Uh, also, you know, money doesn't doesn't govern everything. A lot of of a candidate's performance when it comes down to to gathering votes can depend a lot on how many volunteers they have working for them and how well they marshal those volunteer resources to to get people out on the street, knock on doors, and get their name known. Yeah, you can so learn keep a that lot in mind learn a lot about a candidate just by following how their campaign goes mm -hmm. and how they respond to different uh, things that happen during that time period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Then we will uh, – We'll see you next week. <laughs>